Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. I'm here today with Sarah Harrington, a partner at Goldstein and Russell, to talk about a small but powerful part of the Department of Justice, the Office of the U.S. Solicitor General. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So let's talk, let's start a little bit just sort of with the, the nuts and bolts of the Solicitor General's office. How many attorneys are there? Where do they come from? How's the work divided up? Do the lawyers have specialties? Go. I'm going to go. So um, you have first <laughs> at the top, you have the Solicitor General, who is um, nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Then you have four Deputy Solicitors General. One of them is a political appointee. That person is called the Principal Deputy Solicitor General. And then you have three others. Um, and then below that, you have 16 assistants to the Solicitor General, who are kind of what you would call the line lawyers in the rest of DOJ. And then there are also four Bristow fellows, sometimes five, um, who are people who are just kind of just out of law school or just usually just off of a court of appeals clerkship, and they're just there for one year. And they kind of help out the other lawyers in the office, and they get to do their own court of appeals argument usually. So that's sort of the makeup of the office. And then, of course, there's a very vital support team in the office, paralegals and people who manage the docketing and all that kind of stuff. Um, the work of the office is divided among the deputies by subject matter. So um, there's a criminal deputy solicitor general who for many years has been Michael Dreeben. He's not in the office right now. He's on detail to um, Director Mueller's office. But uh, there are the rest of the docket, the civil docket, is divided among the three other deputies. The work is assigned to assistants by the deputies. So um, because there are four deputies and 16 assistants and they sort of make an effort to work with all the assistants, everybody in the office ends up doing a little bit of everything off of everybody's dockets. Everyone does some criminal work. Everyone does some, a little bit of immigration, a little bit of environmental work. Um, it just sort of gets distributed um, across the board. Now, within those topics, there are people, or with, I would just say within each deputy's docket, there are assistants who tend to end up specializing, um, which is just, it's sort of driven by efficiency, I guess I would say. Um, so I ended up doing, I came to the office with a civil rights background. I ended up being the office's bankruptcy expert. Of course. Right. That's kind of how it goes in the SG's office. Um, and part of it was an accident. My first, the first case I was assigned to argue in the office was a bankruptcy case which is on Malcolm Stewart's docket. He's a deputy. And then as other bankruptcy cases came up, he didn't give me every single one, but um, one would come up that was sort of related, maybe tangentially to what I'd done before, and it would come to me because it was just um, you know, a less steep climb for than it would be for a new person. Um, and that's sort of how it goes. So over time, people end up specializing a little bit. So talk a little bit, please, about sort of your path to the SG's office and other people's paths. So um, the most... The most well-trodden path, I guess I should say, is uh, that people go and clerk on the Supreme Court. They you know, graduate from law school, do a court of appeals clerkship, clerk on the Supreme Court, and then for two years they're not allowed to work on any Supreme Court matter, so they go to a big law firm for a few years, you know, two to maybe two to five years or something, um, and then come to the SG's office. That's, that describes most of the people who've come through there, I would say, in the last 10 to 20 years. Um, bunch of slackers. Right. Of Total slackers. <laughs> Horrible resumes. No, wait, that's not true. Um, really, so very impressive people. Um, you know, the, the office, at least during the time that I was there, I was there from 2009 to 2017, so for eight years, there was a real effort to try and get people who understood all the different justices, um, people from sort of different ideological starting points, people who had um, just different exposure to the different parts of the court because that's who our audience is and it helps when we're doing 
moot courts for each other and things like that um, and writing briefs to have people you can go and talk to and say, well, how does, you know, for, for a long time, how does Justice Kennedy think about this type of, <laughs> of um, question? Now, now they probably, probably want to hire more chief clerks. Um, but so, so there are a lot of Supreme Court clerks. Um, that's not the path that I took. I, um, the, the sort of the, probably the next biggest bucket, which is a, a much, much smaller bucket of people come from within DOJ. Um, from one of the appellate sections. So when I, I graduated from law school and did a court of appeals clerkship, and then I went to one of the appellate sections, I was in the civil rights division for nine years at DOJ. And those people, and people in those jobs, um, they end up generally working a good bit with people in the SG's office because internal things come up through the divisions, and even cases in which which are new to the department in the Supreme Court, they, they rely on the litigating divisions that the SG's office does to help prepare drafts and... Um, sort of educate the assistants and the deputies about subject matter. Um, and so you end up getting a lot of exposure. That was sort of how I got exposed to the office. Um, and there were a couple other people in the office at the same time who, who came up through the through the appellate sections. There's, there were also a couple of people who had been Bristow fellows in the office and then had gone and done something different. Um, so those were kind of the different ways you could, people get there. And so the sort of the most obvious and sort of Externally, that where we see people from the SG's office is arguing at the Supreme Court, and you talked a little bit about writing the briefs that get filed in the Supreme Court. What other kind of work do you do while you're in the SG's office? Yeah, so it's funny. People focus so much on the arguments, and it's for some assistants, for many assistants, it's probably their favorite part of the job. But if you think about it, it, it's, it ranges between 10 minutes and the actual argument time, between 10 minutes and 90 minutes of your time for the entire year. So... Um, there's a lot more time than that people put into the job, so um, it's really it's a very small part of the job, although it is obviously an exciting part, an interesting part. People think about the work in the office in sort of, not to go back to the buckets, but sort of three different buckets. Um, one is the merits cases. Um, so those are the cases that are that have been, the court has decided to hear argument on, um, and so assistants will write briefs in those cases, either for themselves to argue or for a deputy or the solicitor general to argue. Occasionally, it'll be for another assistant to argue when there needs to be an argument shuffle. Um, And generally, um, they do that by usually getting a first draft from one of the litigating divisions and then revising it and working on it with the deputy and the SG and with the interested components throughout the government. Um, And then either arguing it or helping whoever's going to argue the case argue it sort of one component of that part of the work is that the assistants all moot each other. So mm-hmm. um, as you know, the court hears argument in seven different sittings throughout the year, two-week sittings, and generally if an, if an assistant does not have an argument during a sitting, they are then put on sort of in the moot pool, and each assistant and each deputy and the SG will do two moot courts for each argument, and so if you're not doing an argument that sitting, you'll do the moot. Sometimes you end up with 12 moots in a two-week period, which is a lot. Wow. <laughs> yeah. We called that the moot apocalypse when it happened a couple times. <laughs> and that happens when you have a sitting with a lot of participation by the government and a lot of assistant arguments, so there are not that many people left. Um, so those are interesting times. And um, so if you are arguing, you're not expected to, to so moot other people? Usually. During the usually. Moot, usually, moot apocalypse, um, we would draft people who were arguing to argue, you know, they, after they were done with their argument or if they were at the end of the sitting to do an early moot, something like that. People generally are pretty generous about pitching in. Um, and those moots are just incredibly valuable, and people put a lot of effort into them. It's sort of a, you know, it's a collective um, benefit situation where you want to put a lot of effort in because then you're going to turn around and ask your mm-hmm. colleagues to do the same for you. 
Um, so that's sort of the merits cases. And then there's um, what people on the outside of the department call bios, but in the, in the department you call ops. Those are briefs in opposition to cert petition. Um, so the you know, the, the public really only focuses on the very small percentage of cases that gets granted by the court, but there's a huge number of cert petitions that get filed every year. And um, the government is on the receiving end of a lot of them. So there's just, um, and the government actually waives response in a lot of cases, particularly the criminal cases, but even even so. They, Did the assistants help make the decision about whether to waive? No. So the litigating divisions make those recommendations, and they make the determinations in conjunction with the deputy usually. Okay. Um, so, but even when the government waives, a number of those get bounced back by the court. They see a far call for a response, and then... Um, the litigating division will do a draft, and it gets assigned to an assistant and goes up through the process. The SG is not usually involved in most briefs and op, um, unless it's a very controversial or important case, and then the SG will get involved. Um, so that's sort of the second bucket. And, you know, I was there for eight years, and I probably did, I don't know, a couple hundred briefs and op, something like that, maybe 150. So there's a lot. <laughs> um, it's a lot more work than people sort of see on the outside. And then the third category of work, the third bucket, um, people call the RECs, which is the recommendations. So other components in the government, generally, they're not allowed to, if they lose in a district court, they're not allowed to appeal without permission from the SG. If they lose in a court of appeals, they're not allowed to seek rehearing on banc or obviously file a cert petition without permission from the SG. Uh, if they want to intervene in a case in which the government's not a party, they have to get permission from the SG. And if they want to file an amicus brief in a court of appeals, they need permission from the SG. I think that describes all of the permissions necessary. I might be missing something. And so generally what happens is then you get, as an assistant, you get a stack of memos um, and documents from whatever the proceedings are below, and the division will make a recommendation, you know, we lost this case, we would like to appeal. Um, And I did a lot of environmental cases, and so in those cases you would get, there would be a memo from the Forest Service, and then a memo from the trial section in the Environment Division, and then a memo from Environment Appellate, and then it comes to me, and then I write a memo, and it goes to the deputy, and then the deputy writes a memo, and so when the SG gets it... I hope this is all electronic. It's actual, it's an actual stack of paper that you get. I don't know if, you know, I haven't gone almost two years, so I don't know if they've changed it, although I doubt it, but you get, um, you get an actual stack of paper. Trees. Yes. Are weeping. Trees are weeping, it's true. Um, and there's like, someone wheels it around on a cart, you know, um, so you lose time in the transfer. It's, it's not the most efficient system, but um, it does, uh, some of the deputies have been there, there for a long time and it works for them. So um, so when the SG gets the, gets the stack of memos, it's literally just like a stack of memos and probably each SG reviews them in his or her own way, generally his own way. Um, and then the SG makes a determination, yes, you can do this thing you've asked or no, you can't do this thing you've asked. Frequently, we'll get an orders list from the Supreme Court, and instead of granting a petition for review, denying a petition for review, the Supreme Court will instead invite the Solicitor General to file a brief expressing the views of the United States. In other words, they will kick the can over to the Department of Justice, and they will ask the Department of Justice to weigh in and make a recommendation about whether or not review should be granted or denied in a particular case. Can you talk a little bit about how that process works once it's at the SG's office? Yeah, so these are cases in which the government is not uh, a party, and the government may or may not have already articulated um, a view on the legal question that's presented. Usually the government has not articulated a view, which is why the court is asking for the view. Um, And so the when the CVSGs, as people call them, happen, or they call them sometimes invitations within the building, um, 
when those happen, the someone in the SG's office will take the cert papers that have been filed by the private parties and send them to the interested components. So if it's a criminal case, if it's a state criminal case, it goes to the criminal division. If it's a bankruptcy case, it goes to the U.S. trustee's offices and the civil division and maybe the tax division, depending on what kind of issue, you know. So, so you, you can, can have more than one, too. Yes, yeah, so you can have more than one. Um, I won't go through all the possibilities, but, you know, mm-hmm. you get the idea. And um, those components will make a recommendation. Um, and the, the question on the table from the perspective of the government is, should the court grant this petition? Um, and there's usually two components to the answer that the SG gives. One is should the court grant the petition, um, which involves all the usual calculus, calculus that you make in responding to a petition. Is, it, is there a circuit split? You know, does it meet the traditional cert criteria? But the SG's office also almost always, I think not always, but almost always will offer its view of the right answer to the legal question presented. And so the components will come back and say, this is what we think the right answer is. And we think you should either recommend a grant or recommend a deny for one of a, no- a number of reasons. And so then what happens is the SG's office and the people from the interested components will meet with the parties. Um, so And they try to do these meetings as back-to-back meetings in one morning or one afternoon. They'll meet with petitioners' counsel, and you you know go in, and now I've been on the other side of the process, um, going in as petitioners' counsel and as respondents' counsel. Is it weird counsel. going in on the other side of the process? It's a little weird. Um, you sort you know of they're talking about you once you leave. I the know room. they're talking about me, and I. It's sort of nice to have been in the office though, because I know depending on which deputy it is, like what how the conversation is likely to go. You know, sort mm-hmm. of how difficult the questioning will be. But you basically go in and. Um, I've been in meetings where there's like three people in the room from the government and been in meetings where there's 15 or 20 people. Mm So it just really depends on the type of case. And you go in and they say, okay, give us your pitch. And as petitioner, you go in and say, you have to recommend a grant. There's an obvious circuits conflict. This is a perfect vehicle. It's so important. The decision below is wrong. And if you're a respondent, you go in and say, give me a break. There's no circuit conflict. This decision below couldn't be righter, but who even cares because there's no circuit conflict and there's also no circuit conflict, you know, et cetera. And so then... Fact-bound. Right, totally fact-bound, horrible vehicle, interlocutory, you know, all the usual, the list of reasons to deny. And then they kick out the respondents and then the government people will stay around and have their own meeting to decide what to do. Um, And then they eventually file their um, response to the court's invitation. Can I just stop you for a second? So before the meeting, there's already been sort of a tentative decision made? There's recommendations made. Recommendations? Sort of like, and I'm just curious how often the meeting changes or sort of how how influential the meetings can be. Um, They can be pretty influential, I would say. So before the meeting, there's generally, there are recommendations from the components. There hasn't been a recommendation made by the assistant. Um, there usually hasn't been a decision made by, you know, or by the deputy and no decision made by the SG. And so people go in with relatively open minds. That being said, people read the materials and have their view, you know, and the SG's office, um, you know, views itself as representing the interests of the government. And so the recommendation of the interested components carries a lot of weight, usually. Now, sometimes you'll have a case where you'll get conflicting recommendations. So, there's, you know, take an employment discrimination case, right? You have the Civil Rights Division, which enforces employment discrimination laws. You have the Civil Division, which defends claims of employment discrimination against the federal government. And so that's an area where you'll often get conflicting recommendations. And so that's probably an, a, an area where the meetings can move the needle more easily because you have sort of people on both sides. Um, and sometimes you, especially with respect to the to whether to grant, um, as opposed to the question 
of what the right answer is. Mm -hmm. There'll be questions going into the meetings about um, whether it's a good vehicle, about what happened below, you know, what was really alleged in the complaint, things like that. And so those are questions that you can really get a lot of good information from the parties about, and that can help sway the decision. And so then after the meetings, the government files a brief. Eventually, yes. Eventually. <laughs> yes. So they get a lot Sometimes, of times, like this term, the government has a deadline to file a brief. Yeah. So this this was the first time I'd ever seen where the government was given a deadline to file its CVSG brief. And then the court didn't act on it in time to hear the case this term. So it was a little bit strange. But, you know, I think now that I'm on the outside, I get it. People get annoyed that the SG's office takes a while sometimes to file its invitation briefs. Of course, I understood perfectly why that happened when I was on the very inside. Busy. Yes, they're very busy. And... Um, you know, so so it's like I said, it's CVSGs happen in cases where the government is not a party, and usually in cases where they have not yet taken a position on the legal question that's presented in the petition. If you compare that to cases where the um, the government is the respondent, so they're filing a brief in opposition, they almost always take at least sixty days to respond. Those are cases where the government is a party, obviously has a position because they won below, they've been participating, but it still takes sixty days. It's just a big place. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of people. Uh, and so it's um, sometimes people will say, oh, well, they should put a 60-day or 90-day deadline on CVSGs. But um, if you think about how those cases fit into the rest of the work of the office, I think certainly 60 days would be unrealistic. 90 days might be more realistic. But um, it would, if you put a short clock on CVSGs, it would end up probably delaying responses in cases in which the government actually was a party because there's only, <laughs> there's only a limited number of people and a limited amount of time in the day. So something would have to give. Um, but generally, the Estes office does try to hit particular, a couple different deadlines in the course of the term with their CVSGs, and so you'll end up seeing a whole bunch of CVSGs filed in late November, or early December, and that's so that they can the court can decide whether to grant those petitions and hear those cases before the end of that term. You'll also see a whole bunch of CVSGs filed. Um, around the third week in May so that the court can decide whether um, decide before it goes on summer break whether it's going to grant those petitions. So they, they, they take pretty seriously those um, deadlines, which are not actual deadlines, but they, view, they are viewed as deadlines. What was a typical day like when you were working in the SG's office? So it sort of depended on the hierarchy of the inbox, right? So you come in. One thing about the SG's office, which I found is not true in private practice, is they're just a steady stream of work. You don't have to worry about where the work comes from. It just comes. It comes when you don't want it to come. It comes when you want it to come. It just comes. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. Um, and so you go in the morning, and first thing you do is check the inbox and see, is there anything new? Okay, no, nothing new. So then you sort of just go and consult. And probably everyone does it differently. I would just, would just have a list of, you know, to-do list to put things in order. Um, and so you have things coming in. It's really it, – it, you, you learn to sort of develop time management and scheduling skills. You have to because – at any one time, any assistant has, I would say, between five and 12 active matters on his or her desk. And you just have to sort of manage, like, which things have due dates, which of the due dates are coming up, um, which of the things have to get to a particular deputy, you know, X number of days in advance, so then they can get to the SG, things like that. Um, and so, um, so you go, I would go in and sort of pick up the next thing that needed to I needed to do, and um, then it's really a lot of sitting in your office and reading and writing. Um, it's sort of not that different from a typical appellate lawyer's job, which is somewhat solitary. Um, you spend a lot of time at your computer, a lot of time thinking, um, and like I said, a lot of time reading and writing. Um, because of that, there is 
there has developed, at least when I was there, there was a nice camaraderie among the assistants because you can go a little batty just sort of sitting in your own. They're nice offices, but you can go a little nuts just kind of sitting there by yourself. And so during the time that I was there, and I think this still goes on and had gone on for a long time, there's some group of the assistants that usually gets together and has lunch every day in the conference room. And there's a lot of, there's some effort to sort of break up the day a little bit, like check in with each other, um, be a little bit social. Um, and then interspersed in the reading and writing um, are moot courts when it's moot court season um, or meetings for various, I described the CVSG meetings. Also when there are um, cases where the court grants cert and the government is not a party, but is interested in getting involved as an amicus, they will also have similar kinds of back-to-back meetings with the, with the lawyers for the parties. How often did you go to arguments when you weren't arguing? I went pretty often. So one of the great benefits of being an assistant in the SG's office is that there is a certain number of seats at the argument um, reserved for the SG's office in the bar section. Um, and uh, whether you get a seat as an assistant depends on seniority and how many people want to go. So How sharp your elbows are. Yes. <laughs> so uh, when I was there, um, my earliest years there, I went to a lot of, you know, Social Security and bankruptcy arguments because mm-hmm. those were not the oversubscribed ones. And then as you're there longer and longer, you can get to the higher profile ones. Um, and so I went. I tried to go pretty often. Um, it's, it's relatively um, easy to do because... There's a van that goes. You get to drive in the back. It's like very um, efficient to go down, um, unlike for for most other people. And um, it's super valuable, I think, to to see other people who you respect do arguments because everyone's a little bit different. And I feel like you can pick up a lot of good tips. And just um, it's just you know it can only help one's own practice to see how other people do it. And a lot of times, if you've mooted a case and you're kind of interested to see how it goes, or talk to someone about it, or you've worked on a related issue or something, it's always fun to go and, and watch how the actual argument goes. You've argued 20 times. Do you have any memorable moments from those 20 arguments? Um, well, they're all memorable. Well, I should say they're all both memorable and utterly forgotten in the sense that um, it's been my experience and I think the experience of others that as soon as you sit down, you completely forget everything that you said. Um, and so you go back and read the transcript and think, oh, that sounded pretty good, or oh my goodness, did I say that? Um, but I had one memorable, I'd say the scariest moment I had at oral argument, the one time when I just had no idea what to say. Um, Happened in a case, it was a criminal case, um, and I was arguing it was a statutory interpretation case. We were saying you should view it X way. The defendant, um, I guess petitioner, was saying you should view it Y way, and Justice Breyer said, oh, it's a rabbit duck. Yeah, and I was like, what now? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a case about rabbits or ducks. And I just had no idea what to say. I now know what he meant was he was referring to this optical illusion picture where you kind of look at a picture one way and it looks like a rabbit. You look at a picture, the same picture a different way, it looks like a duck. If he had said, oh, it's like the old lady, young lady, or it's like the faces in the vase, I would have been like, right, I know what you're talking about. I'd never seen the rabbit duck picture before. And so I've never heard of it. Yeah. Now you'll go Google it and perhaps your listeners will and you'll see it and, and know what I'm talking about. There's like a rabbit duck beer. I'd find out all about the rabbit duck after this happened. But um, I just didn't have any idea what to say because I just had no idea what he was talking about. And luckily for me, Justice Scalia jumped in and said, oh, it's a jackalope. What are you talking about? You know, and I was like, I feel you, brother. Um, And then someone said, oh, you look at it one way and it looks like this. And you look at it another way, it looks like that. But that was the one time I would say when I just didn't know. um, I just thought, wow, did I like tune out for a minute and missed some piece of conversation? But um, it was just Justice Breyer being his quirky self. I was about to say, I bet if we did a poll of like frequent Supreme Court advocates, sort of what was your scariest or sort of most lost moment, Justice Breyer would figure really prominently in many of them. (laughs) Yes. Sarah Harrington, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. And thanks to our sponsor, Case Text.